Welcome to the Real Estate Secrets Podcast for healthcare professionals, hosted by Austin Hare and Nathan Palmer, who together have over two decades of real estate knowledge and investing. This show is about sharing lessons in commercial real estate that were learned from trial and error and working directly with CEOs of billion-dollar healthcare organizations. Our mission is to teach the insider strategies to everyday healthcare operators in order to get access to the best real estate at the best prices. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Negotiation. Here we are going to do a recap of Chapter 8 by Chris Voss and his book, Never Split the Difference. Um, continuing on from our previous lessons, and we're going to start with an example, a story that it gives about St. Martin, Louisiana. And so what, would ha- what had happened here was there was a group of inmates who had taken the warden and the staff hostage, so all people that were working at this prison. And the negotiators felt the inmates didn't really want to hurt the hostages. They didn't really want to cause them any harm. They were kind of just stuck in between a rock and a hard place by the time they got there. But they were worried that um, the inmates were worried they'd get beaten by the guards when they surrendered. So this is the primary fear that's going through their heads. And what happened was that the negotiators gave them some walkie-talkies. And so then they were to walk past the three different perimeters where they would be transported to jail. And so the idea was that they could, after the transfer, they'd radio in, hey guys, you know, it's me, I I didn't get beat up, I'm fine, you know, they let me in, I'm safe, I'm healthy, blah, blah, blah. Um, However, on the way in, as the inmate, the first guy was walking in, he got the radio, well, a security guard walked over, said, hey, what are you doing with that? Confiscated the radio. So now you got this inmate who's going inside, and he can't communicate back to this group to say that, hey, I didn't get beat up, I didn't, they didn't hurt me, whatever. And so um, now you've got the guys freaking out, okay, the negotiators ran over the perimeter to find out what happened. And the inmates are threatening to cut off the finger of the warden, I mean, they're threatening to bash his face in, and um, it's getting really bad. And so what they found out, they were asking around what happened, and this SWAT guy just, you know, kind of waddles over, like, all proud, hey, oh yeah, I, I confiscated this radio. <laughs> And it was almost uh, bad, right? A lot of people were injured. And so the point is, the lesson is um, communication and implementation, okay? Implementation means nothing. Or, or communication, negotiation, all that means nothing without implementation. And um, in other words, yes is nothing without how. So you don't get the profits when the agreement's made, right? They come after the deal is done. So you gotta be able to follow through. You gotta have the how. There was an American, another story here, an American was kidnapped in an Ecuadorian jungle. It was Jose and his wife, Julie. They were guiding tours down there. And Jose loved the jungle. I mean, it was his passion. They had visited there, and he had this dream of opening up this tour guide for a long time. And so one day, they had a group of 12. They were going down the river, and they were afterwards, they brought everybody back, and five minutes from the end where they were staying at, three guys with guns pop out of the woods and kidnap them. So what happened was the captors wanted $5 million, and of course, the FBI wanted time, right? So they implemented this new strategy that we've been talking about in these previous chapters using how questions, right? The calibrated how questions. So you could say, how are we supposed to know Jose is okay, right? That was, that was essentially their go-to question that was going to be used over and over and over again. And the cops didn't like the idea, right? I mean, these cops... Um, was new to them. They'd been trained by the book, and particularly they'd been trained by the FBI, by the FBI's handbook. So they didn't like the idea 
of switch like the FBI telling them they now had to switch things up. Um, what happened when he was captured is that Jose began building rapport with the captors to make them harder to kill. You know, he was teaching them martial arts. He was there for a really long time. He was talking, having conversations, and just really trying to get to know them. And every single day they had a long walk. His captors had a long walk to the public payphone so that they could communicate about the ransom and about the negotiations. So Chris instructed Julia, his wife, to ask questions, or sorry, to only ask questions when they were on the phone, right? So every time they came down there, she was just instructed not to give direct answers, but to ask more questions. So they came down, they got on the phone, they asked her for $5 million. So what does Julia do? Well, she replies, how are we supposed to raise that kind of money? How can we give you anything till we know Jose is alive, right? And so these guys weren't prepared for that. Um, you know, there's a, there's a group of them, they have to, they have logistics, they have to talk back and forth. And so um, they were perplexed, but not angry. And that's, that's important. So this slowed the negotiation down while giving them the illusion that they were in control. And um, because remember from previous chapters when we talk about calibrated questions, you know, you're kind of walking them down this pathway that's not antagonistic, they feel like they're in control. So what happened was that with using the strategy over a period of time, they negotiated the ransom from $5 million down to 16,000. And then they demanded for that money immediately. Okay, but sticking true to the strategy, Julia replied, how can I do that when I have to sell my cars and trucks, she asked. Again, the here, she was always buying more time, okay? Always buying more time, always dragging the, pro, the process out and having those calibrated questions that most of the time start with how. And they were right there on the verge of success. Everybody was getting excited. And then all of a sudden, Chris gets a phone call in the middle of the night. Panic shoots through his body because uh, last time this happened, the guy had got away. They had failed their negotiations. But this time... They told Chris that Jose was set free. Well, that he, rather that he was free. And what happened was that with all the delays um, and the questions, some of them peeled off and left. They left one teenager alone to guard the house by himself. And during a rainstorm one night, Jose saw an opportunity to leave where he could sneak out of the window. He wouldn't make as much noise with the leaves because of all the ambient noises. And two days later, he was back to his family. So what do we... Take away from this, well, how questions are a sure way to keep the conversation going. You can shape it in a way that you can eventually get to the answer you want to hear. And just have an idea of where you want the conversation to go in your head ahead of time and then start forming your questions around that. A gentle how-no is non-confrontational and gets them thinking on your side. So essentially, instead of just saying no, you just ask a how question that has the same uh, sort of impact is no, but it's it's less confrontational. And tone is super critical. So, you know, you don't want to come off as confrontational. That's very, very important. The other thing about the how-no questions is that it engages forced empathy. You know, they're forced to think in things from your perspective. How am I supposed to do that is now the primary go-to question for the FBI, which is pretty cool. Okay, we're going to talk about a girl named Kelly. She was a client of Black Swan, and she was owned a lot of money for a contract and she wanted to keep working with the client in good faith but was so far behind that she couldn't continue on she also felt that if she pursued the amount owed hard that she wouldn't get paid at all so she's kind of again stuck between a rock and a hard place so chris advised her to wait don't, you know don't be aggressive with it just wait until they ask you for more work and then request the payment and she was timid, you know, she pushed back, she didn't want to do it because it sounds antagonistic, but if you do it with the right tone, then it's really not antagonistic. And so sure enough, they called again, they asked her for an assignment, and then she said, how am I supposed to do that? 
you know, uh, guess what happened? She got paid. <laughs> a deal is nothing without good implementation. So by making them interpret it in their own words, they will feel the fine negotiation was all their own, right? And that's when you're dealing with a counterpart. All right, we're going to talk about some good questions to ask, okay? These are things that you can throw in throughout the negotiation and um, make sure that you are buying in all sides of the party, all sides of your counterpart. So how will we know we're on track? That's a great question to write down. How will we know when we're off track, okay? And be wary of that's right or I'll try, right? So if you ask someone a pointed question and the answer is I'll try, that should send up yellow flags if not red flags. And as we talked about earlier, that's right just means they're agreeing with you to get you to be quiet. Remember the answer that you're, um, oh, and yeah, really that that's right is what you're looking for, but you're right is the answer that you want to be wary of. So you're right and I'll try. Um, both those answers mean that they're not really sold, right? So I'll try and you're right are things to look out for. All right, which leads us right into topic of influencing those people behind the table. So after Jose escaped, Chris was worried that it was just by dumb luck that he got out and he didn't really think they had done a good job at the FBI. So he visited Jose for a hostage survival debriefing, which is common. And Jose said, because Julie kept asking questions that forced them to gather together and have long conversations um, just because they didn't know how to address it. So that's when Chris knew that they had the right tactics and it worked because it made sure the kidnappers were all on the same page. Get support. Now, if you want to truly get to a yes, then you have to gather the support of the entire team. And a lot of times we don't think about this. We think about the person that we're interacting with. So you can ask, you know, how does this affect the rest of your team, right? Like be proactive about this. Don't wait till it's too late. You have to consider the team behind the table who can block the agreements they don't like. And deal killers can be a lot more important than deal makers. So just remember that. So we're gonna talk about the Florida deal. Uh, Chris was closing a deal for negotiation with a company in Florida. The CEO, the head of HR were completely on board. They were totally sold, ready to move forward. They had buy-in from the top decision makers. Um, however, it turned out the head of the division that needed the training was the one who killed the deal. So it was the subordinate in this company. And the point is that they didn't care until it was too late. So this whole thing could have been avoided with a few calculated questions early on and brought the guy who was the one who would be implementing the training into the conversation earlier is probably one of those things where if they had simply asked him ahead of time, he would have been okay with it. So let's talk about jerks for a second because you're gonna inevitably come across jerks in every industry and in every walk of life because it's, a, <laughs> it's just the rule of large numbers. So learn how to evaluate the verbal and nonverbal cues. Changing a, changing a single word can subconsciously influence them. Right, so just change not to lose to, or really rather change um, lose to unable to keep, for example, okay? Just little subtle words like that. And we're gonna talk about some tools for home runs now. So there's a rule, it's called the 738-55% rule. And broken down what it means, 7% of the message is gonna be based on the words that you say. 38% of the message comes from the tone of your voice, the inflection that you're putting on your words, how you're saying it, and 55% comes from body language and facial cues. Body language is the absolute most important negotiation tool. And unfortunately, that's always lost in emails, okay, texts, even phone calls. 
And it's most often lost even over Zoom calls and Skypes and virtual meetings, right? It's, it's most most um, of the time, you're going to get a, the best representation of that. You're going to get the best understanding of that when you go to an in-person meeting, when you physically fly out there, fly, you know, we like to fly as much as possible to go meet with somebody, even if it's only for a day, because we feel it's that important. So what do you want to do? Make sure that your body language and your tone line up with the words that you say. Make sure that the body language and the tone lines up with the words that your counterpart says. Here's an example. You could say you. So we agree, them, yes. You, I hear you say yes, but it sounds like hesitation. Them, it's nothing. You, no, it's important. Let's make sure we get it right. Them, thanks. So this just makes sure that you get it right early on before you have to go back and make corrections to the deal. And so in that example of going back and forth, the it's hard. Like if you if you ask me a question, and the answer is yes. You don't get to see them move. You don't get to see their body reactions. It's really hard to interpret what might actually be going on from that one word reply. But seeing them, you know, getting a feel for it could be a lot more indicative of what's actually going on in their mind. And I'll bet in the past, you've probably heard a yes and gotten a no. And so, you know, there are three kinds of yes. We talked about this earlier, but there's the, the commitment yes, which is really what you want. There's the confirmation yes, which is not uh, ideal. And there's the counterfeit yes, which is uh, pretty much just a, a lie to get you <laughs> to get you out of the room. So the rule of three, um, get the other guy to agree to the same thing three times in the conversation. It's really hard to lie repeatedly. So the first time they tell you yes is one. So you can mark that down as one, right? And then what you can do in order to get them to say yes the second time is label what they said. So we talked about labeling previously and you would slap a, a sort of um, a, an assumption, you know, a label on them and the agreement that you have to get a yes. And then ask a calibrated question like, what are we up against here? What's the biggest obstacle? I remember this comes after they said yes twice. And I know we have a tendency, our salespeople have a tendency after they get someone to say yes, or they get a client to say yes, they don't want to talk them out of it. And I so say you just want to go ink the deal really fast before they have time to change their mind, etc. But that can lead to a lot of back out. That can lead to a lot of, you know, reneged contracts. And so when you force them to say yes three times, then you're drastically increasing your chances of creating a long-lasting relationship and creating a long-time client. The Pinocchio effect is what a term that psychologists have uh, coined for people who are lying. And on average, liars use more words than truth-tellers. They also talk in third person. Uh, subconsciously, it's kind of like a way to distance yourself from the lie, which is silly, I know, but it's, it's what happens. And then they talk in complex sentences. So... It's as if they're trying to win over their suspicious, suspicious counterparts. And the number of words grows with the lies because they're worried about being believed, so they feel like they have to prove it, right? That's what's called the Pinocchio effect. Okay, this next one is funny. This is called the Chris discount. So you want to use their name, but you don't overuse it. And the reason is because most people have been through sales presentations where the sales guy finds out your name and they just use it over and over and over again. And so it's great. We love hearing our name, but um, it can get worn out too. And so if you use your name in the negotiations, then it creates a feeling of connection and a feeling of intimacy. And it's also like the, it creates a dynamic of forced empathy. 
And so what you can call it, I could call it the Austin discount, or you could call it the Chris discount, or whatever your first name is. And as an example, Chris, he was at an outlet mall a few months after the hostage uh, ordeal, and he's buying some stuff, goes to check out, cashier asks if he'd like to join their loyalty program. Chris said, hey, is there a discount if I join the loyalty program? And she goes, no. And then Chris said, my name's Chris. What's the Chris discount? <laughs> and gave a little laugh. Um, so she laughed about it. She asked her manager right there who heard the whole conversation, and she said, the best I can do is 10% off, <laughs> which is crazy, right? Um, he, he built empathy, um, for, for forced empathy like we talked about. Just asked for something totally arbitrary, but he got a better discount, he got a better deal than by signing up for the loyalty program, right? And if he hadn't have done that, essentially he's leaving money on the table. So it's just a good rule of thumb. Um, so you can also express no four times before actually saying it. So the first time you say no is that how question, right? How am I supposed to do that? That's the first time of saying no. You're not actually saying no, you're just asking a question. Then the second time, the second way to say no after they come back would be your offer is very generous. I'm sorry, that just doesn't work for me. So what, what have you done? You've labeled them as generous. That's a label. You said, sorry, that's an apology. And the result is that you've created empathy and collaboration. So the third time, the third way to say no is, I'm sorry, but I'm afraid I just can't do that. And then the fourth time would be, I'm sorry, no. Every single one of those times, those last three, you're, you have an apology in there, you're being very polite about it. And then the last one, very, very final thing, would technically be the fifth time, but very gently, just say no. And remember, the tonal um, quality, the way that you say this in your inflection is non-antagonistic. The European cannabis company. So there's a story that uh, Chris dealt with. There's two brothers. They opened a cannabis shop. They were uh, brothers-in-law, but they opened a cannabis shop for 40,000 euros each. Uh, it's Joachim and Bruno. And they're going through, you know, it's a business, it's difficult. They're, they were not growing as fast as they want. I think they had a little bit of financial hardships, but uh, Joachim found Bruno's wife selling their products online for herself. So essentially, you know, stealing from the company, right? For all intents and purposes. And then he found out Bruno wanted to be bought out completely. So he was just, he was done with this company. And so they crafted a label for Bruno because Joachim had worked with a, an advisor who was helping him apply these principles that we're learning in this book. And they came up with, it seems like you're under a lot of pressure from your wife. That was the label that they created. And at the time, Joachim, uh, ironically and unfortunately, was also going through a divorce. So then they created an, an accusation audit. And essentially an accusation audit is you label yourself with the bad thoughts that they could be thinking. So he said, I know you think I don't care about costs or taking profit from the company. And bam, that worked because Bruno started saying why he agreed with that audit, with that accusation audit. And he also noted he didn't have anyone to bail him out like Joaquim because Joaquim's mother-in-law had given him, or his mother had given him a startup loan. And during this time, he was unloading for 10 minutes and Joaquim used mirrors to keep Bruno talking as much as he could. And then Joaquim said, I know the pressure from your wife can feel tremendous. Um, you know, I'm going through a divorce myself and it can be exhausting. Then Bruno went on a rant and he revealed the bank gave him two options, repay the loan in full. I guess the bank was doing some sort of evaluation or underwriting, um, you know, on the loan they'd given him. And they said, hey, repay the loan in full or pay a higher interest rate. Bingo. And 
that's when they got a critical piece of information. So with that new information, Joaquin decided he could reasonably pay just above the loan price because Bruno had taken about $14,000 in salary. So the loan price, you know, I think was about twenty dollars or $23,000. And Bruno had already taken a large portion of that in salary. So there's also zero market for his share because who's going to want to come in and buy in for this $40,000 European cannabis company? Um, Joaquin decided uh, he'd offer him 11000 up front and the rest over a one-year period in seller financing. So, however, during the conversation, Joaquin jumped the gun, offered him the full price, and immediately said it was very fair. <laughs> and what's the best way to put off your counterpart? Just make them assume, or you assume, that disagreeing with you is unfair. And so, as you can tell, didn't work very well. Uh, didn't work very well. A day later, Joaquin got an email from Bruno's lawyer, and they wanted thirty-eight thousand or thirty thousand eight hundred and twelve euros, listed in non-round numbers. Um, you know, bullet pointed out with three different categories, so that it seemed very non-negotiable. It was very professional. I mean, the guy was a pro, and Joaquin was also a pro. Unfortunately for Bruno, working with coaching, and he cultivated a four-step no plan to get Bruno to bid against himself, and. Really, things that were working out in his favor was that the worst case scenario was that nothing changes, right? Nobody's going to come in and buy these shares. And so he just had to continue on with a broken relationship, really. But the first response to the lawyer was that the price was fair and he wished he could afford it. And then he apologized, but he made no counteroffer. Joaquin was shocked when the following day he got an email with a lower price of 28,652 euros. He responded, Thank you for your offer. You're very generous. So, um, appreciation, gratitude. You're very generous as a label, a good label. Um, you're very generous to reduce the price, and I appreciate it. I wish I could pay you, but I'm sincere that I can't pay that at this time. Good luck. The next day, the advisor dropped it to 25,000 euros. Joaquin wanted to take it because it's pretty close to his original offering, but he had some no's, no steps left to go. So he used the last no, thanking him for the offer and telling him he wished he could do it. He made the same offer he made before, 23,000 euros, but this time the only difference was instead of 11,000 up front, it was 15K up front and the rest over one year. It worked. Within an hour, the advisor responded to accept. This may not have worked with another buyer, but it worked to make Bruno bid against himself. Takeaways. The most important concept, yes, is nothing without how. Okay, think about the implementation ahead of time. Asking how and knowing how are both important. Ask calibrated how questions again and again and again. This gives the illusion of control to your counterpart, which is very important. Use a how can I do that as a gentle version of no. Don't just think about the people you talk to. Ask about everyone behind the table. Be proactively thinking about who else could influence this deal. Follow the 7, 38, 55% rule. Watch the body language carefully. Is this, is the yes real? Test it with the rule of three by asking different questions. It's hard to lie three times. A person's use of pronouns indicates if they're telling the truth. Speaking using we, they, them means um, they're probably in control as well. So a lot of times people who are in control don't like saying I. The people who don't have control, um, the people who are not in control, you know, will like acting as if they do have control. And then use your first name to develop rapport and create new discount opportunities when available. So that's it for chapter eight. Hope you guys enjoyed it. We are getting close to the end here. And um, stick around for the, fi the finale, the wrapping up of Never Split Difference with Chris Voss. 
If you need help finding the perfect location for your practice or you're ready to invest in commercial real estate, email us podcast at leadersre.com. That's podcast at leadersre, R-E as in realestate.com. Or go to leadersre.com and fill out our form. See you next time.